0: If you feel physically and mentally better after a yoga class, Tiffany Cruikshank won't be the least bit surprised. For 25 years, she's been scientifically exploring the healing powers of yoga and other Eastern practices, which led her to founding Yoga Medicine, giving modern insights into ancient practice.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting where the science and tradition connect.
0: The power of the mind over pain.
1: I would say more and more and more and more I feel... The importance of the mind. And
0: the newest organ in our bodies.
1: It's actually this living matrix.
0: That's Tiffany Cruikshank on this episode of Brilliant Brains with me, Tim Samuels. Brilliant Brains is brought to you by Karmacists, the new name and supplements that you want to be taking every day for mood, immunity, energy, and keeping those stress levels in check. Wouldn't it be great if somehow we could take the plants and herbs we've been turning to for centuries and fuse them with nutrigenomics, which rather fascinatingly explores the relationship between your diet and genes. Well, Karmacist scientists have done just that, to produce a really unique range of supplements. To see the mood, immunity, energy, and relax formulations, and frankly get a much better explanation from a Stanford scientist, head to Karmacist.com, that's K-A-R-M-A-C-I-S-T.com, where you can get 10% off by entering the word brilliant at checkout. Back to Tiffany Cruikshank. So Tiffany, you've come at this from a very interesting point of view of combining kind of the East and the West, but on a sort of very fundamental level, if you have sort of two human bodies in front of you and one's being looked at from a kind of Eastern medical perspective and one's being looked at from a traditional Western perspective, what's the mindset that's different when looking at at the body and how it works?
1: Yeah, I think the the biggest difference that comes to mind first off is just that I think in Western medicine, in order to go really deep into the information and understanding of the body, we really separate things. And so it's almost like a mechanic looking at a car and working on one piece of it, you know, replacing or tuning one piece of it versus really thinking of it in the Western or the Eastern sense as a whole of holistic medicine, um, really being more like the gardener. So noticing that the ecosystems are all interconnected noticing that I can have the very best optimal environment and soil and water. And sometimes things won't thrive. And sometimes I have the perfect environment and things do thrive. And so remembering that I am, I am only one part of this, but then also looking at the three dimensionality of the human being, which isn't just the physical or the mental or the energetic. I mean, I just think the power of all of these systems is so interesting. And I love being able to dig into each one really deeply, but you got to come back out and see the big picture and remember that it's all interconnected and in my work with patients that's really key you know people we go and see the specialist we go and see the person now we have so much information in this western context we go and see the specialist but we only get one little piece and so it's nice kind of i feel like yoga kind of brings us back together and looks at this this whole uh, and well let's say holistic medicine as well looking at the whole and the inter interrelationship of all these things
0: so if even if you take a a specific condition maybe one of the ones that you treat more regularly how does that approach differ from if you just go and see your conventional specialist
1: you know i think you mean so as far as like the outcomes or let's say
0: you know so, someone's got a bad back for example how would you take that more holistic approach to working out mm. what's going on and treatment
1: well that's an interesting one too because i think in western medicine what we're learning too is the power of the mind there's such interesting research. I mean, with someone with back pain, I'm always thinking, is it mechanical? Is it more of a communication issue? Is it a central processing and a nervous system regulation issue? Is it an energetic or emotional? There's there's all these different layers. And now in the fascial world, I was looking at, is it an proprioceptive or interoceptive issue? So for me, it's kind of continuing to learn a lot, both in the Eastern and Western approaches, and at some point letting go of that brainy knowledge to follow my gut and my intuition, which as any kind of doctor, healthcare provider, yoga teacher is so important. Um, And even in the pain world, what I was starting to say is, you know, we've learned just recently how important the mind is. We can, we've seen really great studies um, out of Australia where they've actually just looked at patient education on how pain works and it's actually very successful in treating pain. And then the mindfulness aspect, which is really important in pain. Uh, there's so much interesting research coming in pain. And pain is really my specialty is orthopedics and sports medicine, though I do a lot of other things as well. Uh, so back pain was, was a good choice.
0: <laughs> in this kind of Western way, where we tend to focus in on the condition rather than the kind of bigger picture, what do we miss? What are the kind of... Un- I guess the underlying, almost networks or systems that are operating in the body, which we perhaps look past by mistake when we're just focused in on on the on the one particular bit.
1: I mean, I think we miss a lot. I would say more and more and more and more. I feel the importance of the mind. The mind is the filter of the information, and we know this now in pain researches. We know this now in the in the world of you know science of pain um, is that you know we don't actually have pain receptors. What we have are you can think of them as danger receptors. So these nociceptors are sending information on extreme changes in temperature, pressure, and chemicals back to the brain. and then My brain's running it through all of the information of my lifetime, emotional, education on pain, my relationship with pain, cultural, all of these nuances to decide, is this a threat? And the pain is actually happening. And, and you, know, you need to make sure you are careful how you interpret this, but the pain is actually happening in my brain. And whether that's real mechanical issues here or whether that's a central processing issue or a stress issue, the pain is real. It's always real. And so, you know, looking at the mind as the great lens and the great filter, this is what I think is so beautiful about yoga is we do go right to, we do a lot of work with, with the the mind, even just in simple things like our, our nonjudgmental attention, whether that's through movement or stillness, um, which is really, I think of it like tuning this filter the lens through which we see the world which that shifts everything it's huge for pain of course
0: in terms of yoga (laughs) you go you go there you do your practice you do your asanas what's sort of internally happening in the body which might promote certain changes or benefits i've kind of always wondered you know when you're doing certain postures are you almost kind of Massaging organs, I don't know if you've um, kind of thought through what's the physiologic physiology of what's going on inside you
1: yeah, well, I, I think first off, there's a lot we don't know about um explaining the effects of yoga. What we do know, what we can look at, um, and some of this is interpreted from the fitness world, Some of it is yoga research. The reality is that there's very little good research that would hold up in the medical world around the physical practices there's some pretty good there's some great research now on meditation. But what we're thinking, one thing I would say, the the thing we can explain the best is the effects on the nervous system. So I think that's pretty undeniable that you know yoga is influencing the nervous system, which is really this regulation of what was often called vagal tone or sympathetic versus parasympathetic, but really our ability to be able to interchange really easily between go and do and then rest and restore, so that our body has this balance. Clearly, there's circulatory effects which can add to the visceral effects or the organ effects on our our physiology, that compression and release can be influ—I think influential on the physiology, which is a harder part to explain other than if you just think about how influenced our physiology is by the nervous system. So in something like restorative yoga, where we're really mainly supporting the nervous system, we see global body-wide effects on the physiology. But there's a lot of interesting research on fascial health, which can be I'm writing a whole long course on that right now of just how important fascial health is and how much we can do within a yoga practice for that.
0: I mean, some call it a <laughs> new organ, I don't know, but it's this kind of sort of sheath, is it, that sort of is all underneath but yeah. all across us? You can probably describe it more accurately.
1: You can think of it like an organ, but it is it is the connective tissue. So it was part, part of what they discovered as that new organ was the, the interstitium, which is part of the fascia, um but think about the connective t- this is connective tissue fascia is a type of connective tissue and think of it um this is going to dumb it down a little bit but it's often called like the filling which people get upset about now because it's actually this living matrix that not only connects and supports the body but it communicates and not just this is the mind-blowing part not just with the nervous system but actually in itself so think about this as like a bodysuit right under your skin this connective tissue that communicates within this fascial layer through things like vibration, crystallinity, semiconduction, piezoelectricity, things that we can actually prove in science outside of the nervous system. So it's a huge communication system in sports, it's our force transmission system which takes a lot of the pressure off the joints and makes our movements more economical and efficient. There's immune cells here, so there's there's all sorts of things happening. This is you know the collagen and um, the cartilage, the ligaments, the tendons—all of these are types of connective tissue. But the fascia is really we're thinking about like the interconnections between the muscles, and then this layer right under the skin, which you could also think of as our proprioceptive or sensory organ, because it does have a lot of um, nerve innervation as well.
0: It seems to be central to a lot of, sort of function, but, but yoga seems—you're saying—especially attuned to optimizing the fascia.
1: Yeah. So there's ways that, so the research on this is on the connective tissue is still in its infancy. We used to throw this away. We do dissections with our yoga teachers every year. And even in medical school, even still, you know, this is tissue we throw in the bucket to see the muscles. We get rid of it, but it's, it's such an important part of what we do. And there's so many different ways that we can target it, whether that be, um, a lot of the, the research now is looking at implications of how we can stimulate the cells called the fibroblast to lay down more collagen, which actually makes the tissues stronger. The tensile strength increases, um, increasing hyaluronic acid, so that this is, um, this is like the sponge that pulls water into the tissues, which if my tissues have more water in them, remember back to like elementary school, water is resistant to compression. So it actually pressurizes the system and provides some passive stability to the joints Um, and also also allows things to collide and slide, which is really important for mechanics of movement and and how the muscles move. But um, there's a lot of different ways just through this like slow, gentle movement can be one, because these connective tissues are what we call um, fixotropic, which means when we're sedentary, (laughs) like we are somewhat now, Um, they become more viscous or more thick, uh, more kind of like sludge versus when I just start to move. And it doesn't need to be movement specific, but as I start to move, especially whole body movements, that connective tissue layer becomes more viscous, more fluid. And so, you know, you go, if you've ever done just like a gentle, slow flow yoga class, not aggressive, not intense, you feel really great and mobile at the end, even though you didn't do any specific stretching um that's a big part of how that's happening because it's influencing this whole connective tissue layer so um that was more than you wanted probably
0: <laughs> never get too much science um <laughs> but i i guess it's sort of fascinating how modern science is starting to give us a glimpse of why yoga might produce benefits but yeah. yoga itself is you know it's millennia old
1: well, and and a lot of people believe that the acupuncture meridians are in the spatial layer, and you know we know that that the needles can stimulate some of that piezoelectricity as well, and so yeah, I think it's really interesting where the science and tradition connect because you know research only tells us so much; it tells us one little tiny piece of information about a specific population, a specific place and time, and then we've got to repeat that and interpret it, and then test how that applies in the clinical setting. A lot of what we take is our interpretations of that, but, you know, the traditional practices of yoga, you know, and our experience is, is always our truth. You know, if it's something that's helpful, that's always, it's always how It's not like I can deny whether I can, you know, try and extract these scientific theories, but if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So our experience is such a big part of it. And I love that yoga helps us live in this experience as teachers to kind of guide people through the experience of their body, because I mean, there's so much medicine can't explain and hopefully will always be that way. I think there's this beautiful mystery of the body that's, it's incredible. It's awe-inspiring, you know?
0: Okay, did you know that saffron is pound for pound more expensive than gold? More impressively, and frankly, usefully for me, in clinical trials, saffron has been shown to raise levels of serotonin, the happy hormone. As luck would have it, Karmacist, who sponsors this podcast, Feature a painted form of pure saffron in their mood formulation, which is what gets my gloomy backside out of bed in the morning. Go to com for your mood-boosting saffron. It's so interesting that the science is almost catching up to what ancient uh, or traditional Chinese medicine or yoga knew hundreds, thousands of years ago. Yeah. Do you have a sense of perhaps how? they alighted on (laughs) um, postures or uh, acupuncture points which have stood the test of time. And now we might understand why they scientifically seem to benefit us.
1: I do think it's interesting because there is a lot of stuff like we, we do a lot of science and Western medicine concepts within our trainings. And then a lot of it does come back to these really simple practices that we've used for so long. And I don't have an answer to who knows, like I try not to figure that out. Who knows what they were doing thousands of years ago when they figured out the meridians and hundreds of acupuncture points, which are super specific in their use or the yoga postures. I won't even. I won't even venture down that route. I don't know. But it is pretty cool when it comes full circle, and we can start to peel away some of the layers in science. And from my perspective, um, what's important about that is we develop a new Western relationship with these things because there's some parts of these traditional practices that are outdated, and so you know we have to be able to modernize it and bring it to our modern day lives that sit in chairs and drive to work or you know whatever that might be. That's very different than. You know Indian culture where there were no chairs, and you know it was actually all men who practiced it for a long time. Women weren't even allowed to practice yoga for a long time, and so and now a very female dominant uh practice with yoga and and plenty of men of course too but uh I think we need to be able to modernize it as well and and meet the individuals so I think applying this lens of western medicine, anatomy physiology, kinesiology to some of these energetic Chinese medicine, holistic concepts for me is just helping us get to know who this person is. And I, what I like to do is think of this as like, like a game of connect the dots as a, as a healthcare provider. If someone comes in and tells me they have lower back pain, that's just one dot. I can never see that picture without more information, both from them as well as, you know, the subjective and objective. Um, and so for me, I'm putting those, all those dots together and not just looking through a Western lens or an Eastern lens, but just trying to see who this person is and get to know them better so that I can really create something that's individualized for them. Not to say that, you know, you can't get a lot out of a group yoga class, which I think is very powerful as well.
0: In terms of modern yoga classes, if a, mm. if, a, if an, an ancient yogi wandered into a yoga class today, would they recognize what's going on and, and how would they feel about perhaps the, the atmosphere in the room?
1: Well, I think if, if someone like Krishnamacharya or Angar, some of like the old school yoga teachers, if they venture into a class today out of context, yeah, I think they'd definitely be taken back and probably be like, this isn't yoga anymore. However, I think if Krishnamacharya was still alive somehow, and had come through this time and watched its evolution and seen how yoga has changed to suit our needs. I, I think Krishnamacharya would have been someone to incorporate a lot of these new modalities. Now, that's a pretty broad statement because there's a lot of things happening in the yoga world. So I think I'm leaving some leeway for interpretation. But I think he was very much about, in in my understanding, individualizing these practices to the students. I mean, you look at his main students, Iyengar. Tabi Joyce, Desika Char, all created very different styles of yoga, Iyengar Ashtanga and then Vinyasa yoga. And he was really about being able to individualize it. And for me, you know, now that we have this robust concept of anatomy and research and physiology, I absolutely think he'd be bringing in those concepts in his own way. I think what's hard is when we become really dogmatic about it, we get attached to these things that like, this is the one way it has to be and almost become more rigid. And I think, Yoga should be different for the person. It should change over the course of our lifetime. And it's more kind of like, um, you know, you learn to play the guitar. I'm I'm trying to learn again now. I, I played when I was a teenager. Um and you've got to learn the notes and the chords. You learn someone else's music. And then one day you can play your own music. And I think it's the same with the yoga asanas and like the books, you know, we have these pictures and this idea because first we have to learn the anatomy, the alignment, the poses, you know, the shape. But at some point, it actually becomes our own asana, our own version. Not everyone's bony structure moves the same. Not everyone's soft tissue moves the same. The poses are never going to look the same in every body. And a lot of people will never get their knees to the ground in you a know, seated cross-legged position, which is absolutely fine. It's actually perfect and healthy for their body structure. And so what we have to do is lose this attachment to that and embrace it and find our own connection to it. And I think, I think that's what these, if if those ancient yoga teachers could come along and and see that whole progression, I, I definitely think. I mean, I think a lot of them would probably um, maybe they'd even be the you know the the front leaders or the the advocates of that as well.
0: Yeah. I sometimes find in a yoga class, you try and catch someone's eye and smile, or and <laughs> and people look at you like you've just broken wind, and there's a kind of like, I'm here. This is my space. Leave me alone. I'm. Um, this is, this is incredibly serious and it sort of feels like some of the joy, which you imagine was there originally. And and if you've, whenever, if I've done yoga in India, it feels like a more joyful class. Sometimes it feels like you've walked into an aerobics class, um, and people just don't want you to smile.
1: (laughs) That's funny because my, my, um, experience studying in India was very different. (laughs) It was very like each person was doing their own thing um i think it's like medicine though in that it it's really dependent on what your needs are i think there's a place for all of these things in yoga i really believe that we tend to get you know caught up in like which is the right way but like from a mental health context we we know how incredibly precious and valuable the social connections are and in chinese medicine there's you know it has its own importance and and layer as well and then we also know though from like uh, some of the studies around connective tissue, some of the newer studies looking at interoception, how important it is to be mindful. They've done studies actually where they were looking at shifting pain perception. And the requirement was actually, I'm not I won't go into the specifics of it, but the requirement was the person being mindful. When they did these techniques on people, when they were reading a book or focused on other things, it actually had zero, zero effect Now, obviously we're talking about different conditions, right? So for some people, if I have more, um, interoceptive dysfunctions or proprioceptive, that mindfulness, that introspective awareness is really important. But for the mental health, I mean, uh, such a powerful part is that connection. We know that connection. We feel that connection is such a powerful part of our health that we tend to minimize and focus on like nutrition and exercise and all these things that we know are important, but those social connections are just as important.
0: I guess um, a lot of people at the moment are having a challenging time with their mental health. What sort of practical wisdom, mantras, practices would you suggest to, I don't know, try, try and keep the serotonin up and stress away?
1: Well, the research on yoga and mental health for things like depression and anxiety is oftentimes very generalized. It has very positive outcomes, but it's usually around generalized yoga practices, which is unfortunate. Um, and there's a lot around meditation too. I, I don't think you can go wrong. In fact, I also think these these virtual classes that people are doing provides us with some of that connection. I know myself included, It's it's wonderful to get on there and be able to take classes with people virtually. Um, And see their faces, which is again a really important part of our mental health is that connection. Um, And so finding ways to connect virtually, uh, finding ways to stay in touch. But I think really you can't go wrong with the yoga practices. But for mental health, I think one of the big things is finding something and sticking to it, finding something you enjoy. Don't overthink it. I mean, we could get into a long conversation on things that can be helpful, but I would say the most important part is the non judgmental mindfulness that we approach it with and, um, being easy on ourselves. You know, I think we tend to come in with an agenda or a focus on fixing and changing. And for me, working with people and supporting mental health with yoga is about actually welcoming all of the sensations, welcoming them with curiosity, um, and, and mindfulness. Now, obviously there are more extreme cases where I, I need someone to help tighter that, you know, sometimes these emotions can be overwhelming. But in a safe way, you know, looking at some of these emotions and, and making peace with them, noticing there's a place right now for grief and my body needs to sit in that and process it. And there's a place for the anxiety and stress and and the moments of joy, maybe, or, you know, the moment you see your dog's tail wagging, I know for me, of like the joy that it brings. But I think holding space for it without needing it to go away, without needing to fix it, looking at it, recognizing like a mirror recognizing our humanness in these emotions because the beauty of being human is this granularity of our emotions and what we've found recently is that the the emotional resilience is really about emotional granularity our ability to identify and welcome and notice the the specificity and granularity of the emotions that we possess as humans
0: and with those grains of wisdom the universe or my broadband supplier, decided that was that. Before I'd even got a chance to ask Tiffany about who her brilliant brain would be or what she'd do as Global Dictator, which we like to put to our guests at the end of Brilliant Brains. But a big thanks to Tiffany Krugshank. To hear all 12 episodes of Brilliant Brains, including the biggest losers, Gillian Michaels, reveal the psychology of lasting weight loss and the impact of losing contact with her father, go to commercist.com.au slash podcast, home of our sponsor. Thanks also to Nature Boy for the music and producer Tess Davidson. From me, Tim Samuels, that's this episode of Brilliant Brains.